Hey everyone, uh, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Julie Cook. I'm Janine Dunn. I'm Matt Downing. And you're listening to Rethinking EDU. Welcome back from your short hiatus away from our amazing podcast. We certainly missed you. But the reason why we took a little bit of time off is because we are introducing a new series starting tonight. Co-host, you all excited for this or what? I know I'm pretty pumped. Yes, I can't wait to oh, hear. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so as many of you listeners out there know, the four of us have been um, pursuing uh, EDD degrees from Northeastern, that's uh, doctorates in education, for the past two and a half years. The four of us are all getting ready to hopefully defend our dissertation sometime in the next few months, knock on wood, right? Woohoo! Um, woo yeah, for sure. It's been a long haul, and uh, this next series of podcasts that we're going to do are going to be featuring some of the researchers that we've uh, met along the way in our program. We're inviting three researchers to each episode, and we're each going to spend a little bit of time talking with these researchers as they describe the context and the findings of the studies that they've been conducting over the last two years. And it's going to be super cool. Some of this research is really amazing, and I'm really um, compelled by the guests that have, you know, raised their hand and said, this is how we want to put our stuff out there into the world. Now, to get started on each of these, uh, each of these interview series, we're going to talk about a common question that often comes up when people are thinking about pursuing doctorates. And so for tonight, we're going to talk about the difference between a PhD a doctorate in philosophy and an EDD, a doctorate in education. And Janine, I know you've been doing a little bit of reading on this topic, just so we can uh, share with our listeners. What did you find? What What are some of the major differences between a, a PhD and an EDD? So I think to start off with, when you, a lot, when you think of PhD, um, it's, that's really considered an academic degree that is really preparing those graduates for doing more research and possibly even teaching roles. But when you think of an EDD or a doctorate of education, um, they, that's really considered a professional degree with the purpose of using it in like educational leadership roles. Um, and that not only are you doing research, um, but you're taking it a step further and you're and it's being applied. So there's an application to it. Whereas with the PhD, I think that it's more just focused on the research alone um, and not so much on the actual application of it. Like I know within our program, um, we, we were doing things in our research sites to bring about change. And that was an important part of, of the EDD uh, process there. Julia or Matt, do you want to add anything to that? Just that I um, I spent a long time researching different um, programs and I found the EDD to, I guess, be more aligned with my thinking, what I wanted to do next. I think um, it depends on what you want to get out of your degree. Um, and I definitely wanted to keep teaching and, um, you know, work on um, my practice in my context sounded exciting to me at the time and still does. Yeah, just to add a personal experience. Um, so, you know, I'm writing my dissertation. We're getting down to the end. And throughout the dissertation, there was a lot of focus on, okay, we want the writing to be good, right? We want it to build and make sense. And it all has to be scholarly. But there was a heavier emphasis, I feel. This is just like, you know, what I felt on the action. You know, what did you do? What did you learn? And how can you share that with other people to help change other practice? There was less of an impact, less of a focus on, you know, are your ideas, are they going to, are your ideas going to change, uh, you know, research? It's more, how did your action change your context? Yeah, that's interesting. I think of a PhD often like, you know, you're trying to uh, add to the existing body of knowledge in your given area in a specific way and in a new way, right? Versus an EDD, you're tending to um, push something specific to your context forward or to the practice that you are kind of acting in. So in our case, right, um, for the four of us, it was it was K-12 education. We're trying to push K-12 education maybe as an institution forward in some way by looking at our specific context and creating action there and doing research on that action. 
I think that's a that's a pretty good way to describe it. So all of those of you listeners out there who are thinking about pursuing a PhD or an EDD and you're thinking, man, I just don't know how to decide, you could definitely hit us up. We would love to hear from you. We, um, you know, shoot us over an email, send us a message, what, whatever you need. We'd be happy to chat with you. Um, catch us on LinkedIn or Twitter, wherever, whatever kind of social mediums you use. But without further diving into this, um, kind of nuts and boltsy sort of stuff around research. Uh, we want to get into talking with the people that are here with us tonight to share with us their projects. And I'm going to hand the mic over here to uh, Janine in a minute. And um, But the way that this is going to work is each researcher will have a little bit of time to spend with one of us co-hosts, explain their projects and their studies, and get into it. And um, we're really looking forward to showcasing what they've brought to the conversation. So Janine, Mike is all yours. <laughs> well, I'd like to uh, welcome Nicole here to our podcast. And um, I, wanna, I wanna give you a minute to just, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, um, maybe even why you chose to pursue an EDD. And then we'll start, we'll get into the, the context of your study. Um, so why don't we start off with that, Nicole? Hi, so my name's Nicole Willard, um, and I have been in the EDD program at Northeastern University for going on my third full year now. I am a week, well, less than a week now away from defending my dissertation, which is extremely exciting and extremely nerve wracking. Uh, but this is great practice. Uh, so I am an early educator who's currently working in California. I work with pre-K children. I decided to get the EdD because, you know, a lot of early educators are really undervalued and they don't have the opportunity to really go back to school, extend their learning. And in my 10 years of experience, I've really noticed this lack of support for early educators. We're kind of tossed to the side as babysitters. And so I thought, you know, to be able to have this opportunity to go back and kind of look deeper at some of the problems facing the field, it was an opportunity that I should take because not so many people have that option. I love that. I love that you are in early education and have decided to pursue a doctorate. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the context of your study and um, the nuts and bolts of how you, how you got into it and what your research questions were? So... Like I said, early education's really undervalued. We work really long hours in most cases if you're in childcare. Some centers are open from like 6 a.m. till 7 at night um, or some range there to help support parents. We work for very little money. We're not exceptionally well paid as most educators aren't, but early educators kind of get thrown on the even lower scale with many of us living kind of poverty wages. And along with that, we're also required to partake in PD, professional development. Um, and we have these required hours we need to complete to extend our learning, to better support our students and families, which is obviously super important, but we don't have the time. We don't have the money. A lot of centers don't have support to provide professional development opportunities. A lot of these opportunities take place during the day or at night after work. And I mean, if you're working a nine or 10 hour day, the last thing you really want to do is go back and do some professional development opportunity. Um, where our K-12 counterparts, it's often built into the school schedule. So you might have a professional development day where the school's closed for educators to go into, or you, know, you can get a building sub who can come in and cover you while you go to a great opportunity. And for many early educators, particularly those that take part in a childcare setting where they're there, those long hours don't have that opportunity. And so as I did that, I kind of was looking at research questions and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I guess when I got down to it, I really wanted to know what are teachers and administrators experiences with PD? Uh, what do the educators perceive as barriers to participating in PD? Because I had my own perceptions of those, but what did they think? What did my participants think? Um, and then gaining a better understanding of early childhood educator stakeholders perceptions. So that's like board of directors, administrators, um, other influences, parents. Uh, what are their perceptions of their roles in order to address barriers for professional development? 
And so my study really centered around a child care center in Ontario, Canada, where I actually ended up conducting a professional development book club. Because when you think of access to professional development, you want an easy location, uh, hopefully a convenient time, and something that's not going to really cost a lot of money. And so I conducted this study within a childcare center in Ontario because they actually have a continuous professional learning program that they have to do or that they have to complete as part of registering with the College of Early Childhood Educators, um, which is actually really unique to kind of Ontario. Here in the United States, there's not many places that have really rigid kind of registration requirements for early childhood educators. So you might have to get like a certificate from the state or you might have to prove you have like a course or two, um, but the college, that's what they call their registry. Um, they look at kind of what their experiences are. So, you know, they have to have at least two years as an early childhood educator. They, the college really kind of looks at all sorts of requirements for calling yourself an early educator. So you cannot call yourself an early educator or an early or a registered early childhood educator without registering with this kind of governing board. Um, so my study really took place in two phases because it was kind of early COVID days. And so it's when everything was shut down in the center was originally looking to really build community among their staff. And as COVID shutdowns happened, they realized, you know, how are we going to keep our educators engaged? Because we're not open. They're only requiring, you know, maybe one or two Zooms with the kids because you're not going to keep a bunch of like two to five year olds on Zoom all day. That's not super efficient. <laughs> um, and so they were like, what are we going to have our early educators do to really kind of stay on their toes so that they can come back really prepared? and even better, you know, understanding of kind of the school and their philosophy. And so the book club was really the perfect opportunity for them because it was virtual. So the educators could join from their home. It was kind of looking at a common idea. Um, and then it was a great opportunity. They had a leading team that was kind of coming up the ranks for teacher leaders. So they're not formal leaders with formal like administrative roles, uh, but they're teacher leaders who were looking to get some leadership opportunities kind of under their belt and really expand in that way. And so they actually got to participate in phase one and then we expanded it to the rest of the center in phase two with the planning team really implementing it and taking the lead. And so it's this great opportunity not only to build shared community, to provide professional development hours for their registration, but also to provide a leadership opportunity. Now, I was just going to say that I think it was genius that you uh, went the route of having the book club and stuff. I can only imagine how challenging this was to do during the pandemic where you're right. Um, <laughs> School, schools were closing, uh, especially early education. I mean, would it, you know, trying to have kids, you know, <laughs> get on the computers then, and then also having, and then the teachers. You're absolutely right. It's like they're they're already managing, you know, so much that, uh, you know, I think the book idea, book book club idea was was genius on your part. Yeah. Do you wanna um, do you wanna tell us a, a bit about your findings and and you know the answers to those research questions? Yeah, so the first one was really about the barriers. You know, that was kind of one of the primary goals for me was to find out what are those barriers and kind of what is limiting early educators from participating in professional development. And the first answer, I mean, I kind of saw coming as I saw their answers, um, but they were really systemic barriers. So there was, you know, I don't make enough money, PD is really expensive to go to some of these really great conferences. Um, and it sounds like this school was really helpful in providing those opportunities pre-COVID, um, where they would try to comp the cost as much as they could or try to provide those opportunities. But, you know, a $500 conference isn't feasible for every staff member. 
And so, you know, they might be able to fund a one hour session after work, but funding some of these really important ongoing conferences was not an option. Um, they also talked about the hours, you know, they're like after work, I'm really tired because I'm here all day. And then I have to go to this like one or two hour PD session and by the time I get home. Um, and then the other big systemic barrier was location. So they were like, not only do I then have to go after work to spend two hours at a PD session, but then I have to like drive there and drive home. And if someone doesn't have a car, how am I going to get there? And then the final one of those barriers was the, um, sorry, I forgot where I was going with that. Um, but yeah, so it was really the time, money, location, um, and just really lack of support in general, trying to find PD opportunities, trying to figure out, you know, what type they wanted to go to, because there's always some professional development that might not be as considered as effective as others. And so finding topics that they want to go to and are engaged in. Um, and then the other barrier they talked about was their personal barriers. So that lack of motivation, that desire just to check that box and say, you know, up, oh, I went to PD this month, like it's done out of my hair. Uh, and then with the pandemic, they talked a lot about their family. So they're at work all day and then they come home to kids right now who are also home all day trying to do Zoom school. And so they're trying to support that. And then they're trying to do an online webinar, but they've got their kids in the background needing their attention and trying to juggle it all. I think that's really relatable to a lot of people right now. Everyone's just kind of feeling that those barriers just in general. Um, and I really started to characterize, characterize it almost as these gears that were, you know, moving. And when you have the support of the center and the center is providing the location and the time and, you know, they're really encouraging you, it makes those gears move really easily and they're going and you're chugging along and then like one gear stops or something enters the gear and the whole thing just stops moving. So it's, they're so intertwined that it's great if you can afford to go to a conference and maybe you have the opportunity to travel there, but if you can't get that time off work or it's at a time that's really inconvenient, or, you know, you have your kids and you can't get childcare. They all just, <coughs> excuse me, uh, it just kind of all piles up and then the gears stop moving and you can't move forward. And so I guess it was for me really being able to contextualize it in a way of, okay, well, how can we provide more opportunities to move those along? And then one of the other findings we found was it was really challenging to understand the efficacy of the book club. And there were a few reasons that we found as we were moving through, and one of them was really having unclear goals. So some of the stakeholders, like the administrators and a board member um, and this planning team that I worked with, sat down and we talked about like, what do we want book club to look like? What do we want the goals to be? You know, What are our hopes for the outcome? But we didn't really like write them down and it was really more of a brainstorming free flow. And so when it came down to evaluating whether it was effective, there was nothing to evaluate it against. We couldn't look back and say, you know, up oh, we like, oh, our hope was to build community, check, we did that. Or, you know, our hope was that they would understand the concept of the book, check, did that. We didn't have that. So it was just these really general ideas of what we wanted it to look like. And it was like, well, in in the theory, we did it, but could we really say it was effective? Um, that was kind of challenging. And then along with that, there was really inconsistent definitions of kind of what we thought participation and engagement looked like. So having those lack of cohesive definitions, you know, what I thought was effective might have been different than what the administrator thought was effective. And then some of what we talked about with engagement really linked to accountability, but do we have to hold people accountable and what does that look like? Um, so again, there was just a lot of lack of clarity on our part as we were planning it that we didn't realize would really give us trouble down the road. Um, and then it really kind of all culminated with this lack of participation 
from participants of, you know, people have their screens off. It reminded me a lot of what teachers are talking about right now with Zoom school. You know, teachers had their cameras off and they might not have spoke a lot. Like there was one or two who were really actively contributing. Um, but it was a lot of the facilitators kind of chiming in, which is great in its own right, but wasn't really kind of the hope. Hope was that the educators would join in a little more. Um, and we provided them these a host of opportunities. Like we had the Zoom whiteboard up, we had the chat function like ready to go and we did have educators who did chat um but yeah so it was it was really challenging to kind of figure that out and then finally uh it was the facilitators and teacher leaders our facilitators and teacher leadership that kind of emerged and kind of the way that they facilitated communication or connections and professional growth and their own confidence really came out of it that was exciting yeah, well, it definitely sounds like you were busy. So can you, what do you think, so the, the implications could possibly be for um, both, you know, what were the implications for the organization, if you could just speak to that quickly, and then also implica implications for like our larger audience that maybe there, I'm sure there's probably some early educators that are listening out there and this all resonates with them. Could they take away? So recommendations for the organization really surrounded more about that clarifying goals and expectations. You know, if you're going to implement this again, making sure that you have things to evaluate it against. And then on their end, they were really hoping to kind of build relationships with centers in the Ontario community. And so they were actually, as they were doing my research, implementing the book club with other centers. And so it was important for them to kind of have that opportunity to learn from what we did and their, the implications for their own community, but also thinking kind of about how they wanted to build those relationships externally. And then I think implications for listeners. I mean, this is something that is a challenge in any field, right? You always want your you know, your staff members, your coworkers, your peers, your colleagues, whoever they are, to be have this ongoing oh sorry ongoing learning and that's challenging in any field it's exceptionally challenging in early education but i think you know anyone can learn from professional development a book club and you know coming on common ground and discussing a book and the implications for what that means for your own center and i actually got this idea because we did it when i worked at a nonprofit a few years ago, as a team, we had read, you know, one of the latest books. And I thought, wow, like that was easy and accessible and relatable. And how can that apply? And I, so I think any school could do an earlier uh, professional development book club and really up bring that cohesive understanding of a concept to their school. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing about your your study here and your pursuit of an EVB. And, um, you know, Good, good luck. We wish you the best in uh, your upcoming defense and can't wait to hear how it all goes. Thank you. All right. I'm going to kick it over to Matt. All right. Next up, we have Rebecca. Rebecca, it's uh, great to have you on here. If you could get us started with uh, just telling us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and start going into the context for your study. Thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you, Matt. I'm really happy to be here. Um, so my name is Rebecca Murphy. I am. Um, I really enjoy having the EDD program as an option um, because I've been in my field for over two decades, and the PhD model really didn't suit me or my purposes. Um, but having an EDD was, you know, made sense to me. Having that practical application. Um, so what I am looking at. Um, I'm an international credential evaluation professional, um, and I well, hold hold on, hold on, Rebecca. You're gonna have to explain that to us. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Let me explain that. Let me back up and explain what that is before I tell you about my study. So, international credential evaluation is um, is a lot to unpack, but but central to it really is it's a process that um, it's a process by which we look at education any formal learning experience from a specific education system and examine it and then determine how it aligns with another education system. 
So internationally, this means um, looking at what someone has studied, what, what formal credentials they have uh, earned and done, and how that relates to the US education system, what benchmarks, whether it's you know, high school or college or you know, a master's degree, something like that. So it's, um, it's a complex process. It involves understanding uh, the education system of everywhere around the world, but also the US. It involves determining if um, what an individual has done in their learning is comparable to something in the US, but also looking at their assessments, so their grades, and how those can re be recalculated to fit uh, an assessment or a grading scale here in the US. Um, and then also it looks at the legitimacy of the institution or the organization where they did their learning. So by legitimacy, I mean, um, is it a, a formally recognized institution? Um, that has issued that credential where they've done their learning, or is it a professional organization, or is it um, not a legitimate institution at all? So there's really these three parts of the process. Um, so that's what I do, and, and what the people who are involved in that, sort of the stakeholder groups, are really, you know, the professionals doing that recalculation, I guess you could say, Obviously, the people who have those um, internationally based credentials, and then also the the people who are going to use them. And typically, that's an institution of higher education or some other school um, where an individual is coming from outside the US to attend a school. But it also could be, and this is where my study comes in, um, a new American someone who has come to the United States um, as an immigrant or refugee, um, and they are looking for employment, they're looking for further education, and it gets into the idea of um, human capital. So our education and our knowledge, our formal credentialed knowledge becomes a, a gateway to, to access education opportunities, employment opportunities. So international credential evaluation as a whole kind of comes at a crossroads of education, of policy, of economics, of um, social development, community development, a lot of areas. And obviously I'm looking at it, the education aspect of it, but, but tied in with the others. So what I've been looking at is how this, this process and um, could be an impactful process for new Americans who are underemployed. Um, and it kind of goes, it follows that trope, I think that everybody is familiar with, with, you know, you, you get into a car and your Uber driver tells you they were an engineer in their country of origin, or, you know, the, the local pizza shop is run by someone who was a veterinarian in their country of origin or something like that. That's the idea of underemployment. It's the concept that you are employed in a field that doesn't match the earning potential of your education level. Presumably someone who has higher level um, education, the higher level education you go, earning potential goes up as well. But this extends even to individuals who have um, a high school transcript or high school uh, diploma. Um, when they are asked to redo that work and get a GED or some other high school equivalency. I'm in Massachusetts and in Massachusetts they do the high set, which is the high school equivalency test. Um, but other states, they do the GED. It's all the same thing. Um, so I've been working with an adult, adult basic education center, which offers HiSET courses. They also offer courses in English for speakers of other languages. Because the 
highest percentage of their students are new Americans. Um, and we don't talk about any kind of status in terms of, you know, how they came to be where they are. So I use that term new Americans pretty blanketly to refer to immigrants, refugees, um, students, sometimes we'll get students at the center for ESOL classes and things like that. Um, in any case, the center offers these programs and what they've found is that a really high proportion of their new American students are underemployed regardless of their baseline level of education. Um, and we, you know, we sort of came upon each other, the center and I, and started talking with, with one of their education advisors and realized that we really could collaborate. Um, my knowledge of credential evaluation and their experience with their students. And we could, we could really try to explore a little bit more about the impact of this process and could it make, um, could it make some opportunities available for their students. Um, the twist in international credential evaluation in the United States is that it's completely unregulated. Um, there's no formal oversight into the process. Um, there's no credentialing for credential evaluators. It's, it's a very much like the education system in the United States. It's very non-structured. <laughs> um, so there's, there's widely accepted, you know, industry-wide best practices. There's standards that are sort of out there. Um, but it's a field that's really growing and it's a field that is expanding. And there aren't a lot of people who look at the process at this doctoral level. So I really felt it was important to incorporate it into, into my own education um, and my own studies. So that's sort of the, the background as to what I was doing um, and where I was going with it. So it, it really covers education from, from all perspectives, you know, professional education and formal education and vocational studies and, and a little bit of everything. Yeah, thanks for bringing us into that world and walking us through it. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it, it seems like it's, it's really important work that you're doing. If you can bring us into some of the key findings that you've been able to come to throughout the research. So you've been doing this, this action research, right? You're coming to the end, you're gonna defend your dissertation. What were some of the big findings uh, that you found out as the result of this? Yeah, so the biggest thing at first, um, and uh, you, know, you might talk about this later, but you know, we've been doing an action research-based process. And so there's several cycles of research within that structure. And the, the most interesting finding in that first cycle was that I was, not just me, but the industry has been missing an entire stakeholder group. Um, and so I, I kind of compare it to a table and, and you know, credential evaluation is, is the platform of the table. And there's these three legs of the evaluators and the individuals who need the evaluation, new Americans and the, the end user of the evaluation. And what I found was that there wasn't a lot of communication happening between these stakeholder groups. You know, the new Americans had this vague idea that this existed, um, but they didn't know how to go about getting it. They didn't know what purpose it would serve. They didn't know anything about the process. Um, and from the flip side, the, the expert evaluators that I spoke to, you know, really couldn't speak to how to get that message across. Um, because they're not, they're not marketing professionals, you know, they're just really deeply ingrained in, in the process and learning about education systems. Um, you know, they can tell you the most detailed information about an education system anywhere in the world. Um, but how it relates for New Americans is a little bit fuzzy. I didn't actually even consider the, the employers and the, the institutions in this study. And so I thought, you know, this table is kind of wobbly. There's, there's not really, there's something missing. And what was missing or what I feel is missing is um, 
people who are doing advising and advocating for new Americans. So in, in my context, this meant the adult center, the adult education center, the, the advisors who worked there, the director of that center, the other um, people in the community who would be sitting and talking with new Americans and helping them along their path. Um, they don't know anything about this process. And I really felt that that was an important group to draw in and include because that's where new Americans are turning to. That's who they're asking for advice. That's how they're getting themselves off on the road. Um, so what we did was we created, you know, we brought in that community. We created a website to provide resources, to provide answers to questions for that advising and advocacy community. We um, did some training in the, um, the Adult Basic Education Center so that their advisors know more. They changed their process. They, they, it was actually really amazing. They went from not asking about previous educational experiences to asking about them. So that somebody walks in and they're not saying, okay, you wanna sign up for a GED class, let's go ahead and sign you up. Instead, they're saying, well, why do you want that GED class? What kind of education did you do before you came here? Oh, you have a bachelor's degree. Well, no, you don't need a GED class. Don't waste your time with that. Let's figure out how we can get that recognized, how we can get that so that your previous education is acknowledged and it gives you access to something else. Don't waste the time on this. And that was really, really huge. Um, that's really the basics of the findings is that, you know, having some awareness of the process, getting the right people involved, asking the right questions makes the impact more than the process itself. <laughs> it's, it's funny, Rebecca, when we started off on this process, you know, with the big research and they said, you know, it's going to get specific. And, and we all were like, yeah, okay. It's no, it's so big. And you were, this is a perfect example. It all comes down to one word. Why, you know, what, why do you want this? And, uh, and yeah, so thank you for, for sharing that. What do you think are some implications uh, for our listeners, for people in your industry? What are some implications we can take with us? Uh, I mean, honestly, Matt, I think there are huge implications to this. I think, um, you know, for my industry, certainly there needs to be an awareness of what this process really means to people. Um, and I you know, I think that there is an opportunity for people in my profession to become, um, to take it a little bit differently and to become advisors and guidance, almost like a, a, an independent guidance counselor um, or an independent college advisor, right? But this is a credential evaluation advisor. Um, and it's something that, that I've actually been doing, creating some professional developments, creating these opportunities to draw in that new stakeholder group, that fourth leg of the table to make the process more stable um, and, and provide them some information. But really, you know, if you think about your, your podcast name, Rethinking EDU, I, this, for me, my findings are an opportunity to rethink education, um, to really think about what, what does that mean, equivalent education or comparable education from outside the United States, um, you know, what's the purpose of that formal credential and what does it lead to for access, both here and, and anywhere else? Because that's really what it comes down to for me is access. So why are we educating? What are we, what's learning about? What's legitimate learning and what's not? Um, I think those are questions that every educator can ask. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Rebecca, thank you for, for sharing this uh, story with us and your work. And thank you for the work that you're doing um, as well. I know we've been in some classes together and it's been interesting sort of following, um, you know, the scope of your work and, and following it along. So, so thank you for, for all that you're doing and for sharing it on, you know, Rethinking EDU. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity. Cool. We're going to uh, send it over to Julie. Thanks, Matt. Hi there, Kathy. We've been waiting in the wings here. Um, looking forward to hearing from you. 
Uh, Kathy, I wonder if you could introduce yourself, um, tell us about where you are, and maybe set the scene for us. All right, perfect. Thank you. I love hearing how diverse our, our practices are, and I think this is great to uh, marry all of our different experiences into one podcast. It was, it was great waiting in the wings, listening to everyone. So my name is Kathy Dilks. I am a 30-year higher ed administrator, and at the age of 50, I decided to give myself the gift of going back for the terminal degree that I had always thought I would get, and now I am pleased that I waited so long to, uh, to finally take that step, take that leap, that leap. So to explain a little bit about my, my practice, uh, I am situated in New England, in a university that predominantly for years had been very, very focused on the undergraduate population. I was the former um, various titles, executive director, dean of graduate admissions. And one day I had just said to a number of boards of trustees members that we really weren't serving our graduate student population. And so I probably said it to one too many people, whereas one Friday afternoon, I was told I was going to be the founding director of graduate <laughs> services. So it yeah, happens that way, huh? <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's one of those, be careful what you wish for. If you wish for something, be careful who you tell. But it's been absolutely fabulous. Going back to the, the term gift, it truly has been a gift because I, I was able to get back to my student affairs roots. But what I realized very, very quickly is that any higher ed administrator has naturally been conditioned, if they're not in an R1 institution, to really focus their efforts towards the traditional undergraduate student. Everything from housing, student life, um, services, calendars, Everything, if it's if it's a small to medium sized institution, is really focused on that undergraduate population. So I found myself for the first two years prior to uh, going into this degree, really doing my own research, really trying to figure out via surveys and and chat, what do we need? What what can I offer? Um, the institution that I work in, there are over 40 programs of study, and it really had this explosion over the past 10 years, tripling not only the, the population, but also the course offerings. So the, the model that was established is a centralized office of graduate student affairs. So uh, imagine a, a one person at Northeastern University dealing with every single one of us in every single program, master's and doctoral level students. Well, that's what I do. And so really, I needed to become a generalist very, very quickly. And, and I had the desire to become a specialist. And so I wound up looking at different programs and I found myself in an EDD program at Northeastern. And in actuality, it wasn't my first program. I actually wound up in another program, which shall remain nameless, for one term. And I felt, um, I felt disconnected. I didn't feel that they understood me. I didn't feel valued. And I took my money elsewhere, quite frankly. And so that experience, that personal experience for me, really helped me foster an even closer relationship with the position that I now found myself in at this institution. So it was uh, really a no-brainer to investigate, okay, what are needed graduate student services? And so in an action research, you sort of test the waters. You, you look at your literature. You, you question your practice. You start to do some sort of baseline cycle zero investigating. And then you get to what is going to wind up in your dissertation, that, that initial cycle of research. And so I ask the question, what are needed graduate student services? But beyond that question, I, I, I asked, 
what do you know about the existing services? What are considered valuable? And really, what more could I add? How could I really enhance the experience of this graduate student? Now, remember, uh, and it's important that I mention this, I am not working under the academic umbrella. I do not report to the provost. I report to the dean of students. So again, it's that expectation that perhaps my role is uh, you know, not academic. It is really sort of that social role and how can we enhance the students outside of the classroom. So when I interviewed students and faculty and administrators in that first cycle, I found myself asking, define for me what is confidence and define for me what is success. Because at the end of the day, from a from a social social emotional standpoint, we really want our students to be confident, right? We're 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 all fellow graduate students here in this podcast. Don't don't you want to feel confident? And don't you want to feel successful? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and so each of us, if I probably asked you, we probably would have a different definition for what that means to us. And so I, I, I challenge myself to, instead of picking one particular program, I actually sought to get representatives from all five colleges across the campus. And so it, it was fascinating to me that what, what, how, what people defined as confidence and success, almost everyone across the board mentioned something with relation to their own self-efficacy and these notions of imposter syndrome. And then really fascinating, whether they were a medical professional student, a health profession student, uh, um, an arts and science student, a business student, they all found that they wanted that ability to apply the knowledge. Is sort of like we're doing here, right? You know, expanding upon and adding to that 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 base knowledge in our community. And what was thrilling to me was that they all said meaningful connection, whether it was with their peers, whether it was faculty, whether it was with the institution. They mentioned that organically on their own which I find research to be so exciting because I love a good mystery, right? And so you, you, want to, you want to challenge yourself. You don't want to do research and say, okay, yep, I proved what I thought. No, you want, to, you want to be shocked yourself. You want to get into this and really try to challenge yourself to learn new things and learn from other people. So I wound up delving a little bit deeper. And so when you do this type of qualitative research, you really have to be become, not be, become adept at coding and theming. Because the first cycle, I had well over. 700 different codes. And so I, 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 I either made this, I made, made the, a mistake or I was successful at defining, um, uh, asking them to tell me. So tell me, tell me students, tell me student services. Tell me what you consider valuable. And I will see this. And I ask faculty to go back into the recesses of their minds and say, okay, you too are a graduate student do you need? And so it wound up breaking down into things that uh, I, we could actually help them with, which is kind of exciting, right? So I, I broke it down into sort of institutional scaffolding, right? What could we do? And so really it was, it wound up being graduate school preparation and services. And so the preparation for it was that students were asking for clear graduate school expectations. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of this, but you know, there is sort of, you know, this hidden curricula when you get into graduate school, specifically doctoral programs, you, you don't know what you don't know. And students really wanted to feel confident and sort of be told, please tell me because I don't know what I don't know. And so they also had professional expectations. 
And so uh, the, it, it wasn't just the career changer. It really was even those continuing into a profession that they knew well, they just wanted to know what was their further professional expectations. What am I going to do with this degree? And what am I going to do in the profession? They wanted to understand a work-life balance and they wanted to be helped with that. How many of us are up at 3 a.m. doing work, you know, after the family's in bed, after we're done with our own work, then dedicating ourselves to research? So they wanted help with that. They wanted to, it to be defined in, in their actual orientation. And then they wanted to understand graduate resources and what preparation was available to them. Again, going back to that initial problem, we really were, for many, many decades, really focused on those undergraduate students. And so if a student continued from this institution into graduate school, well, guess what? They had a certain expectation. Even if they didn't graduate from this institution, they had an expectation coming from their previous institution, even if it was 25 years earlier. We really all, we really all uh, have this sort of, we know uh, from our learned experiences, and we have these expectations of our learned experiences. So then the next part was the needed services. And it really came down to all those, all those codes, all those different things narrowed down to these themes of engagement and socialization. And, you know, that meant something different to every single graduate student. Most really defines it as a student life experience. Give me those grad nights, put a drink in my hand, give me a paint and sip. Let me just decompress and let me engage with my colleagues. Other people wanted to have an educational discourse and really take what they've learned and communicate it with other people and to justify what have they learned. And then stress relief, mental wellness, that goes without saying. Graduate school can be stressful. Mentorship and guidance. They really wanted not only mentorship from their, from their professors, but also their peers. They wanted to know what was coming down the pike. And then almost every single faculty member I interviewed said, oh, we need to give our graduate students more academic writing help, more research support. So in understanding all of this, and tell me if I'm speaking too quickly, I know I have 15 minutes, but in taking all of this, <laughs> in taking all of this, I thought to myself, well, okay, I can, I can hang my hat and really focus on engagement because every single one of them said, yes, we need to engage with others. But then guess what happened, gang? COVID hit. And I thought, oh, that is the absolute worst time to focus on engagement, correct? Haven't we all, yeah, haven't we all innovated what we thought we were going to do? And so I thought, I banged a hard left because all of this can also be placed into preparation. So again, going back to you don't know what you don't know, I wound up doing an action research on innovating our uh, graduate student orientation. And so originally I was advised very similarly to an undergraduate orientation, put everyone in a room and let's just spit out university-wide information to the whole group. But I found that the action research, I broke it down into 38 individual orientation. And so that allowed me to be very program specific. I also challenged myself to bring in more current students to act as peer mentors and I uh, offered the orientation a month earlier and made it a very social gathering where I invited their faculty. And so what came out of it was I broke down these massive orientations and I made it an orientation series. I started earlier and I'm going to continue later with it. So some of the findings were from the cycle two um, that it was assumed that I was going to find that engagement mapped to satisfaction and that confidence mapped to success. But what shocked me was every single participant, 19 of them, 
faculty, current students, brand new students, all organically on their own said the connections that they made actually helped them be further engaged, gave them confidence to seek help, made them more satisfied, and they absolutely identified on their own that they felt that they were going to be even more successful. So that really the connections made is at the nucleus of all of those facets of a successful graduate student experience. And it also increased their confidence. It enhanced their assurance and it reduced their anxiety. And it, I also threw in a gaming component that addressed imposter syndrome, self-efficacy in a trivia format. And I also introduced university-wide sort of detail. And then when it was time for their main orientation, I really worked with our student affairs team and we made it so ultimately personal for them while also introducing university-wide services. I can tell that you're so excited and passionate about your work and it certainly has transformed your workplace. And what I can see is that for implications for all organizations that some of the things that you're saying you know, connections um, really change uh, the environment and it changes people's view of their own success um, and changes the organization's success. There's so many takeaways for not just um, graduate students and doctoral students, uh, but organizationally, I think, as well. So, so fantastic work. Oh, thanks. And it's the ability to break down silos and to not discount that the graduate students need these connections as well. They need this sense of belonging. And I think most aspects of whether you are K to 12, whether you are working with, you know, uh, you know a non-English speaking community uh, and or adapting a, a former undergrad sort of notion to really what is perfect for the graduate students, making those connections, breaking down silos, having this continued training and really making it fun is really at the heart of what we should all be focused on. Hey everyone, this is Mike. Thank you so much for jumping in and listening to this episode of Rethinking EDU. We really appreciate your listenership, as always. And we really loved being able to feature the voices of Kathy Dilks, Rebecca Murphy, and Nicole Willard on this episode. We hope that you'll continue listening to the rest of our dissertation and practice series featuring a bunch of Northeastern University students and our classmates. And we hope in the future to feature our research too. Super exciting. If you get the chance to, and if you feel so moved, we would love for you to support our episode by donating on our Patreon page. You can head over to patreon.com slash rethinkingedu. And in the meantime, check out our very own Matt Downing's podcast, Diving Deep EDU. A quick interruption to let you know about another great podcast. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Diving Deep, EDU. Thought-provoking conversations. Kathy, that's so awesome. I really loved your description. I can tell that there's so much in there. And I think that's true for Nicole's and Rebecca's study too. There's just so much that goes on in a, in a doctoral research study that it's hard to capture it all in these little segments. But we tried, and I think we did a pretty good job. I got a really solid sense of all three, stu all three studies and what you all are trying to do. And every time we um, host a podcast, we always like to have our final little segment um, dedicated to what we call rethinking EDU, right? Which is a process where we sort of reflect on the conversation and talk about what these, uh, you know, findings and sharings and all of everything in between have made us think about education. Um, and co-host, I would love for you to chime in and share some of your thoughts. Um, there's a lot of us on this on this podcast, so I want to make sure we're keeping it brief. So if you got any 
quick hits, that would be awesome. I would love to hear them. Well, I'm just, uh, this is Julie, uh, looking for those universal connections, as I was just saying with Kathy, um, that connections are important um, for all people. You know, I think back um, to some of the earlier comments, you know, that um, people need to empower um, even younger teachers, you know, these um, these people are, are looking for, for guidance. Um, and I think um, empowering teachers, I think, has been um, one of the uh, threads that I have found through here, either you're teaching uh, mentors or teaching um, teachers in a professional development program. So just wonderful. I was trying to sketch note when I was talking with Rebecca. And so, so I have a table um, and then on the table, like the centerpiece is, is like a Y, you know, that's the centerpiece. And then the tablecloth is like rethinking edu on the table um and I, I just think that was helpful for me like to think about the legs of the table and how we need to have all pieces there and in order for the table to be solid um you know then we can rethink education and and just that central question of why it's it's really sad that so often we we don't even ask that to the most important people oh uh, well matt i don't know how i'm gonna top that <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just, I, you know what, I'm actually just going to go back to um, th this idea of the EDD and just hearing all three of you um, passionately talk about your projects and, and the research that you ended up conducting and the impact that it had, um, you know, not only for your, your organizations, but hearing about how it can, you know, these implications for the, the larger audience here. Um, I think that that you've really have demonstrated the value of pursuing an EDD. Um, that's what I'm taking away from this conversation. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm going to go back to Rebecca's um, conversation with Rebecca's uh, talk about her study in particular, because I think that the idea of international credentialing is is so off the radar for so many people. And um, it's something that's super important. And that's sort of what I gathered from everybody's, but Rebecca's in particular, conversations here tonight is that sometimes researchers are diving into these like little things that are super important in their context that have these um, implications for something broader. And I think we just need to try our best to get that word out there, right? And, and try our best to say, hey, like this stuff matters because our work and our effort is, is meaningful and, um, and useful in the world. And so I'm, ha I'm happy to be able to um, offer that opportunity on our podcast and happy to be able to just hear what people are bringing to the table, hear what researchers are really doing and really ways that they're trying to change the world to be a better place. And Rebecca, I'd love to, I'd love to hear any thoughts that you have as well. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the, the, um, the things that have, has come out of my research really, but you know, it was always in the back of my mind as a tickle, even before this was just thinking about, you know, the, the cultural concepts of education and how we all approach education and learning from really different perspectives and different models and, how important it is to listen to each other and have these conversations like you're facilitating here um, so that we can understand, you know, what my idea of success or learning, you know, as Kathy was bringing in, it, it's probably totally different than somebody else's. Um, and it's important that we, we come to that understanding. So that's a lot of what my study is about. So that's awesome. Kathy, I'd love to hear any reflections that you have on this on these conversations. I just think it's great that we can all gather and talk about what we're researching. You know, the from from the intro defining the difference between PhD, EDD. You know, I don't even like to look at the difference so much as I think both will help people further whatever their goals are. And so I've always considered myself a practitioner. I, I have unabashedly have never considered myself an academic, even though we are doing academic work, which shouldn't be downplayed the amount of research 
the dedication that we're all putting towards what we're passionate about. The, the difference is, is as, as stated earlier, is that it's really applied. And, and listen to all of us, even you as the host, you are applying what you recently have learned. You're allowing us to collaborate and, and connect as a community to discuss this. I just think it's fantastic. And thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. We appreciate that. And Nicole, do you want to add anything into this ending reflection here? I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd really just like to thank you for having us all. It's been really great kind of to get to see the culmination of all these projects of really people that I consider friends now and kind of how they've been on this journey, much like I have been and how you guys will be as you kind of get to defend yours. And thanks. Awesome co-hosts and guests. It's been a lovely pleasure having you all on our podcast this evening. I know that I've really loved learning about your studies. I hope audience that you've uh, loved learning about these studies as well. You should check us out uh, on wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening now, hopefully you're listening on something like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. You can also catch us on your web browser at rethinkingedu.co. And as always, we really appreciate your listenership. If you love this podcast episode and you love what we're trying to do to reshape the conversation about education, uh, we appreciate you listeners out there. As always, thank you and keep rethinking EDU.